You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. You may know the words, oh say does that star-spangled banner yet wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave. Well, these lines written by Francis Scott Key were not penned in the aftermath of the U.S. Revolution and all its elation of defeating the world's greatest nation. And these lines were not penned in the euphoria of the late 1940s and early 50s and Americans celebrating that we saved the world from the Axis powers. Francis Scott Key's poem, that's now the national anthem, hails from not one of America's high times, but one of its darkest. The star-spangled banner that he saw is not a symbol of American dominance and strut, but it is of mere survival in a dark moment. As many may know, it was written in the midst of a war that Americans don't talk about much, Mr. Madison's war, the War of 1812, the President and Congress responded to British mistreatment of American ships and sailors on the high seas with the only logical thing, land grab in Canada. Take over Canada. It wasn't pretty. And it was humiliating, devastating. And in August of 1814, the British sacked and burned the nation's new capital called Washington City, burned the White House and Congress, U.S. Capitol. But at that point, Washington had only been the capital for 14 years, relatively minor loss. The prize for the British would be Baltimore, 40 miles away, one of the main cities. And so a couple weeks later, September 12th to 15th, 1814, was the Battle of Baltimore. America was weak and vulnerable, about to fall again into the hands of the British Empire that we had been part of for years before until the Revolution. We're on the defensive. And Francis Scott Key in Baltimore witnessed the bombardment of Fort McHenry. And he's anticipating all the while another devastating loss for the fledgling nation. But through the night, by the rocket's red glare and the bombs bursting in air, he could see from moment to moment the banner still flying. As long as the banner's still flying, hope has not been forsaken. This is not a symbol of American dominance and strut. This is mere survival under threat. The flag still waving means that all hope has not been lost. The fort and the weak nation, despite the odds, still endure as long as the banner still flies. And so too, Psalm 60 talks about a banner that is flying in a dark time for David and for Israel. It's a sign of survival. 
It is a place to flee to, to fall back to in devastation when the invading army is advancing and routing the front lines. It looks really bad for Israel. And as the tides of defeat are rising around the soldiers, they turn back to look for the banner. Is their side still alive? Where will they escape to? Where will they fall back to when their efforts are now in vain as they're taken over by enemy soldiers? While the banner still flies, hope remains, even as the odds mount. Psalm 60 is the seventh in a sequence of seven psalms that we've walked through here in the last six Sundays, Psalm 54 to 60, that mention seven specific enemies of King David. So we have been in enemy territory these past six and now seventh psalm. What a catalog of foes we have seen in these psalms. We've seen relatives from his own tribe. We've seen a closest friend. We've seen neighboring Philistines, King Saul, rulers of the land, murderous henchmen, and now enemies from distant lands. And in each psalm, David has been under threat from his enemies. And each psalm ends with this amazing note of confidence in David's God. We learn about that particular context in Psalm 60 from the superscript. That's that's the little caps at the top. When David strove with Aram Naharaim and Aram Zobah, and when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Now, Aram was a region to the north and east of Israel in David's day sometimes called Aramea. Maybe you've heard of the ancient Aramaic language which comes from Aram. Jesus spoke Aramaic language a thousand years after David. Later, this region became known as Syria. Interestingly enough, the the conflict may have started kind of like the War of 1812 with a land grab. Along with 2 Samuel 8, we get some of the key background in 1 Chronicles chapter 18. And verse 3 says, this is summarizing David's victories in 1 Chronicles 18. Verse 3 of 1 Chronicles 18 says, David also defeated Hadaizer, who's the king of Zobah, same Zobah, as he went to set up his monument at the river Euphrates. So it might have been that David heard that Aram had turned its back and David tried to catch him off guard, extend the bounds of his kingdom. Meanwhile, while Israel heads north to make this attempt on Aram, the nation of Edom to the south invades Israel. And that's the reference in the superscript about Joab. Joab is the leader of David's army, and it says, on his return. So they went north, Edom attacks, they, send, they got to send Joab now on the return to fight Edom on the backside. 12,000 of Edom fell in the Valley of Salt. And if we only knew of the broad strokes of David's campaigns of victory in 1 Chronicles 18 and in 2 Samuel 8, there's this great refrain over and over. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Verse 6, verse 13 in 1 Chronicles 18. The Lord gave David victory everywhere he went. You get the impression David just rolled 
from victory to victory. This is no sweat. He's just rolling through all his enemies. But Psalm 60 gives us this, gives us this amazing window into that time of fears and uncertainties and to the spiritual dynamic that led to victory after victory. It wasn't just victory, 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 no sweat, no problem. There were fears. There were uncertainties. There were threats. And David learned to take it to the Lord in prayer, as we just sang about. He learned the spiritual dynamic of what to do in devastation. He developed the spiritual reflex in pain, in fear, in uncertainty. And that's the reflex that we get for our instruction in Psalm 60. So Psalm 60 comes in a dark moment when David has been caught off guard by Edom, neighbor to the south, and has suffered an unnerving and even devastating first series of losses. And so David and the nation are undone. And in their shock, in their embarrassment, in their fear, they feel rejected by God. And as we'll see in verses one to three, they're anxious in some measure because they wonder, has God abandoned us in this? Was he not supposed to protect us? And yet in this psalm, in the painful defeat, David sees that the banner is still flying. Hope is not lost. There's a banner that God has set up that is still flying. One last note on the superscript at the top. I love that this psalm says, for instruction. Psalm 60 not only captures a moment in history when David finds himself in the tension between the present darkness and the light of God's promises, it's not only David's expression of self-humbling in that moment and rehearsing God's promises in the moment and making a fresh plea to God for help in that moment. What's implicit in all the Psalms is explicit in Psalm 60 for instruction. That is, it's for teaching God's people in David's day and for the last 3,000 years and in our day. There's a model here for us to see, learn from, be instructed by, and echo in our lives. So let us learn from Psalm 60 this morning as David would have it, and God would have it, this spiritual dynamic of turning to Him in our devastations. So what timeless lessons then might we draw as instruction for our times from the devastation from Psalm 60? Number one, hope begins with the sovereignty of God. Hope begins with the sovereignty of God, whatever the devastation cancer diagnosis, loss of a friend, loss of a job, betrayal by a friend, searing comment, divorce, disease, season of depression you can't seem to rid yourself of. Hope does not begin by pretending that God didn't see it coming or couldn't have stopped it. A God so small that he couldn't have prevented it will be of no real help or comfort in it. 
So David does not begin Psalm 60 with a few exercises in shrinking God or trying to get God off the hook. He doesn't start with, oh God, I know you didn't see this coming. Rather, from the get-go, he owns God's absolute sovereignty over the defeat of Israel's army. And in doing so, he acknowledges a God who's big enough to actually pray to for help in devastation. Look at verses one to three. Oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. Acknowledging God's sovereignty does not make David and Israel or us cavalier. They feel rejected. They feel confused, disoriented, made to stagger. Not only is this humiliating that they've lost to Edom, now there's this piercing fear. Will Edom win the next battle? Will Edom march on Jerusalem? Will Edom consume the nation? Has God rejected his people? So David begins with, oh God, and says, you, six times. And he doesn't say you, pointing a finger at heaven, saying you, 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 you. He's prostrate on the ground with his hands open, saying, oh God, you, 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 you. I pray to you for help. He is humbled, not arrogant, as he says you to heaven. God not only rules over the greatest triumphs of his people, but also the greatest defeats. The devastations of his beloved are by his allowance, but not toward the end of their final destruction, but in service as John just prayed a few minutes ago, in service of his good purposes. And so we might talk about an asymmetry in the sovereignty of God. Have you ever heard might talk about an asymmetry in God's sovereignty? As it were, that he stands directly behind the good that comes to his people's life. It is a reflection of his character, his final purposes, his great intentions for us. We thank him for the good as a reflection of him. And he also is sovereign over the evil, the losses, the devastations. But he stands, if it helps us, indirectly as it were, over those things. They are not reflections of his character. They're not reflections of his final will for his people who are in his son. So number one, in our devastation, hope begins with the sovereignty of God. We don't pretend he had nothing to do with it or didn't see it. We start with him as God. Number two, our God gives us a banner to flee to. Our God gives us a banner to flee to. As Francis Scott Key saw that banner flying over Fort McHenry, 
and he knew that there was still hope. So too, in the devastating news, David sees a banner still flying. Look at verses four and five. You, here's another you. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. So all hope's not lost. But what is the banner? It's not a star-spangled flag. It's not cloth at the top of a pole. What's the banner David's talking about in Psalm 60? In one sense, the banner is God himself, as we'll see. But more specifically here, it is something that God has set up. He has set up a banner. God has made an arrangement of circumstances. He has set up the world, set up life, set up his covenant like this. There's a place to flee for his people. One way to say it is that the banner is prayer. Can you believe God set up the world like this? That his people can pray? That Jesus has gone into the inner courts of heaven that we might pray? The banner is prayer. God has set up a banner for his people in his covenant that his ear is open to his people. And so in one sense, Psalm 60 itself is David coming to the banner. He's coming in prayer to God. He's accessing the banner, seeing the banner, fleeing to the banner by coming to God in prayer in these devastating circumstances. But I think there's even more specific answer we can say. Verse six is the hinge of the psalm. It's where it all turns, where it goes its glorious direction in verse six. Verses one to three, devastation. Verses four and five, hope is still alive. There's still hope, there's a banner, there's hope. Verses six to eight specifically, God has spoken. He's not silent, God's spoken. The word of God is the turning point in the psalm. God has spoken changes everything. Brothers and sisters, this is so precious and this is so practical for us. God has spoken. As we sang, his oath, his covenant, his blood bought promises support us in the whelming flood of our little and big devastations. He has spoken. So, Do we flee to his banner? In our devastations, in our pains, in our distresses, frustrations, do we flee to the banner? Do we fly to the banner that God has spoken and revealed it to us and given it to us? Not a visual banner, star-spangled over Fort McHenry but the audible banner of God's own word to us. Not an image banner, but a word banner. Do you ask, in your devastation, in your fears, 
What does God have to say? That God had spoken changed everything for David. That's the hinge. And that God has spoken changes everything for us. So Cities Church, very practically, the Bible is no ordinary book. This is the very words of God to his people. It's a record of his words in the past to his people and a treasury of his words for us in this age. Not dead words, but living and active by God himself in the power of the Holy Spirit. How well do we know this book? How well do we know the treasure chest of holy joys and balms and tonics in this book? Not just applicable to our devastations, but especially designed for our times of devastation. Do we come here when the arrows fly? Do we fall back first to God's banner to live to fight another day? Or do we look elsewhere? So hope begins with his sovereignty. Our God has given us a banner in his word to flee to. And number three, God's action is decisive. Our action matters. It's inevitable in verses nine to 12. God's action is decisive. Our action matters. Now, there are glorious exceptions. Don't hear me saying that our action always matters, because it doesn't. There are glorious moments like, like Exodus 14, which we saw a couple years ago. The people are backed up against the Red Sea, and God says through Moses, he doesn't say, grab your weapons and fight, here we go. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. And just a few months ago in Psalm 46, there are moments when he says, cease your striving. Be still and know that I am God. And as Christians, we have justification by faith. And so we saw this spring in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. There are glorious times where we are inactive, except for watching in faith. In most of our lives, having watched in faith and received fundamentally Christ's power and his righteousness for us, we act in faith. And David has his moment of being still and knowing that he is God. As David pauses to pray, as David rehearses God's word, what God has spoken, David has his moment of pause, and in verses 9 to 12, lead him into action. Look at verses 9 to 12. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Now, now David has rehearsed that God has spoken. So when he says who, he asks who not because he's clueless, but because he's reinforcing that he knows. He's going to celebrate. He has a who. The question has an answer. He just rehearsed God's word. Verse 9, who will bring us to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? 
Have you not rejected us, O God? So he rehearses that felt sense of rejection from verses one to three. You do not go forth with our armies. However, in light of God's promises, oh, grant us help against the foe. For vain is the salvation of man. With God, we will do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So vain for this king and his armies. He's got his Joab. He's got his Abishai. He's sending them to Edom. And he's sending them there. He's not going to stand back and just watch this one. He's sending them to do it. But he says, vain is the salvation of man. In other words, we dare not go forth in our own strength. We dare not try to effect our own salvation. To do so is to live like the lost. It's to fight Edom with Edom. But verse 12 says, with God, we will do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So notice that we, he there. With God, we, we will do. We will do valiantly, we do. And it's he who acts decisively. He treads down the foes. We shall do, he will tread. We act in faith, but God's action is decisive. And our acting will be vain unless he acts. But the, deci- but the decisiveness of God's action does not make us passive. It didn't make David passive, it doesn't make us passive. Nor do we dare to act on our own strength, but informed by his word. And having rehearsed and made our requests in prayer, faith-inspired action works here in David and in God's people, replacing fear with, I love this word, valiancy. You know what the word valiancy means? With God, we will do valiantly. Let me hear the idea of valiant in English may bring to mind for you, it does for me, knights, chivalry, soldiers. That is, valiant, valiancy is the courage needed for war. War demands training and conditioning in two senses. It demands bodily conditioning, bodily strength, bodily training to get ready for war. Humans don't just emerge from the womb and grow into adulthood ready for war. They're trained for it. And there's a bodily dimension. And then second, there's an emotional dimension. There's an emotional strength, a determined, undeterred spirit or soul. We call it valor or bravery or courage, the heart of a lion. And this is precisely, this is amazing, precisely what Balaam prophesied in Numbers chapter 24 about Israel defeating Edom someday. Amazing connection. David himself and the people of Israel are drawing additional strength from recalling this word of, of, of conquest over Edom. Numbers 24, 18, Edom shall be dispossessed, Balaam's prophecy says. Israel is doing valiantly. So they're fulfilling this ancient prophecy in doing valiantly by God's strength over Edom. And so through quaking and staggering, David and the nation will put 
to rest their fears. How? Now we got some key pieces on the table. Let's, let's put it together now and return to this, this term, spiritual dynamic. What, what is the pattern? What's the default? What's the habits that David's showing for us for our instruction here in times of devastation? Let's trace that spiritual dynamic. So in our devastation, fleeing to God means acknowledging his sovereignty, flying to the banner of his word to see what he has spoken, trusting the word he's spoken, turning to him in prayer, take it to the Lord in prayer, and asking for his help. This is just very basic and powerful. This is our life, and it's so basic, we are prone to forget it especially in a secular age, that would not train these defaults. This is what God made us for, turning to Him, coming to Him, listening to Him, trusting Him, asking Him for help, and then acting in faith as He calls us. That's the dynamic of the Christian life. That's the dynamic of our worship. As we gather together corporately, we go through this dynamic week after week in our services. And we mean to train it into our lives, that we would live our echoes and our small manifestations of Psalm 60 as we meet devastations big and small. But we have one final lesson that's at the bottom and the center of this spiritual dynamic. Number four, God protects his own without fretting or breaking a sweat. I I love the vision of God in Psalm 60. The raging of his people's enemies is child's play to our God. The heart of Psalm 60, this is the main lesson, is the bigness and the calmness and the power of our God in verses six to eight. It's this vision of God through his word which then leads to David's confidence in verses nine to 12. If you wonder, Where did this guy from verses one to three become the one who has the confidence of verses 11 and 12? It's the vision of God in verses six to eight. God's majesty and God's divine composure comes first and leads to confidence in his people. Look at verse six to eight. God has spoken in his holiness. With exultation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab, my wash basin. Over Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. So if you wonder what's going on in verses six to seven, these strange, I know these names are strange to us, Shechem and Ephraim. These mention parts of God's promised land. The land is under threat from Edom. And God is rehearsing his promises about the land, going back to Jacob. Shechem, that's in Cana, so that's east of the Jordan. Succoth is across the Jordan, on the other side of the Jordan River. These were the first places where Jacob settled when he came back from Aram. 
That's where Jacob was when he was away on exile. He was in Aram. And he came back and he claimed these spots first in the land. Then Gilead also is across the Jordan. Manasseh spans the Jordan River. And then Ephraim and Judah are north and south, the two main parts, the hearts of ancient Israel. So the, the effect of rehearsing God's claim on the lands in verses six and seven is that it reminds David in his time of need what God has spoken and his unbreakable commitment to his people. It's a reminder from God, I will not let Edom take, not your lands, David, I will not let Edom take my lands. In fact, now there's a reversal as God calls the neighboring lands his lands. Moab, throw in Edom, Philistia too. Verse eight is the culminating vision of God's strength and his bigness in Psalm 60 and his power. Fret as David might over Edom. Edom does not make God sweat. He will wash his feet in Moab. He will fling his shoe on Edom like it's a shoe rack in the corner. 18,000. And by the way, Philistia will be his too. This vision of God in his power without fretting and without sweating calmly brings his foes into submission with his feet resting on their backs as the heart of the vision in Psalm 60. And that moves David from fear to faith. City's Church, this is our God. He never frets about his enemies. He never sweats over our foes. Not because he doesn't care. Oh, he does care. This is because he is God. The nations rage, the people's plot, says Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ. And he who sits in the heavens laughs, laughs at their conspiring, laughs at their efforts. All the nations are as nothing before him, Isaiah says, 40 verse 17. And they are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness compared to the power of God. Never ruffled, never startled, no nervous preparation. At just the right moment, he tosses his shoe and his enemies are crushed. Derek Kidner is one of my favorite commentators on the book of Psalms. It's almost poetic. It's so fitting that the Psalms, which are poetry, would be commented on with poetic-like prose by this British Old Testament scholar. Derek Kidner, when I'm doing Psalms, Jonathan knows, when I'm doing Psalms, many of us, we always got to check Kidner. Uh, He's got great insights, but also he's just so enjoyable to read, his poetic flair. Here's what Kidner says about verses six to eight as the heart of the psalm. It is as though at the height of a children's quarrel, 
Israel, Aram, Edom. At the height of a children's quarrel, which has come to blows, there could be heard the firm tread and cheerful voice of the father. I love what he calls the voice cheerful. Like a colossus, God dominates the scene in verses six to eight. It is no longer a matter of rivals fighting for possessions, but it is the Lord of the manor parceling out his lands and employments exactly as suits him. Which brings us to the table. In Christ, we now know far much more than David about the speaking of our God. David went on what he had, and it changed everything for him in his fear against Edom. And we have so much more now about our God, about his salvation, about his banner that we turn to in his word, the place to flee in our danger. And the banner of the word tells us about the banner of his cross, where we flee as sinners and to see the heart expression of our God toward us. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son. Hebrews chapter 1. In Psalm 60, verse 3, David says about God's will, you have made us, you have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. But here at this table, Christ gives us wine to drink that does not make us stagger. It brings us from the stagger of our sin and confusion and despair to the sobriety and the clarity and the rejoicing. It is a cup of rejoicing, not staggering, because he reminds us here of God's word to us in its fullest expression, which is Christ himself. So at the table, in Christ, God reminds his people who feel rejected. If you feel that way this morning like David did, if you feel rejected, that his people are his beloved. We walk away from the table, his beloved. We remember here, we're his beloved. And so this is a meal, first and foremost, for the members of City's Church. But if you're with us here this morning and you would say, I claim this colossus of a God who dominates the scene of the nations and gives his own self for us in Christ, then we would invite you to eat with us. The pastors will bring the elements. We'll retain the bread and eat together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.